Singularity. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. As you may already know, my name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and as always, I will be the man with the questions. Today, my guest on the show is David Chalmers. David Chalmers is one of the foremost philosophers of mind and a thought leader on consciousness. And I have to admit that I have been following his work at least since I became undergraduate in philosophy at the University of Toronto. And uh, I started reading articles where he was describing thought experiments such as the neuroscientist Mary and others. So I'm very happy to have David on the show today. Thank you for being here, David. Oh, well, thanks. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. I've always wanted to meet Socrates, so this is now my chance. (laughs) That's a unique opportunity indeed. Okay, so um, David, I'd like to address some of the global uh, biggest problems that humanity is facing today, since you are a philosopher, and that's a rare opportunity um, to be a guest on the show. But before we get there, I'd like to begin with your motivation and your background. So... Let's start with a, with a question of how and why did you get interested in philosophy? Oh, boy. Well, I mean, I started out with an interest in uh, mathematics and science. As a kid, I was always a, uh, a math geek, um, you know, reading up everything I could and doing maths competitions and so on. And uh, went to university, actually did my first degree in pure mathematics. Um, at the same time, I always had some kind of philosophical interest in the background. Um, my, I did one course in philosophy as an undergraduate. didn't do very well. It was the worst course on my, uh, on my academic record. But I, I guess it got me interested. And uh, more and more, actually, I got obsessed by questions about consciousness. It just struck me these were the most interesting, unsolved questions uh, for science today. You know, 500 years ago, you'd be thinking about... Um, you know, uh, space and time, or a hundred years ago, you'd be thinking about evolution, and uh, earlier this century about quantum mechanics, but right now, you know, the the bit of the uh, the the world we just don't understand is uh, is the mind and and consciousness. And so I guess that, rather than thinking about that in terms of philosophy, the problem of consciousness just drew me in, and it seemed to me that to think about consciousness the way I wanted to think about it in terms of a big, big picture, philosophy was the way there. So, I mean, I took a long, complicated path. I went to a I went to Oxford to study maths. I thought about doing philosophy. I went to Indiana where I worked with Doug Hofstadter in an artificial intelligence lab and gradually found my way into philosophy that way. That, that's a fascinating path to philosophy. So, so perhaps I should restate my introduction uh, and ask you uh, and pose it as a question. Do you consider then yourself to be first and foremost a philosopher or a scientist? Oh, I would say by now I'm pretty thoroughly a, uh, a philosopher. Um, you know, I've been doing it for uh, for a couple of decades now, but I didn't, you know, come into this necessarily to be a philosopher or a scientist. And I think these uh, these lines are sometimes fairly artificial. I think about this stuff with many of the same motivations I had when I was a kid studying uh, studying maths or when I was working in a AI lab. Now there are some obvious differences. I don't do you know I don't do experiments. I, uh, oh, as a graduate student, I used to write some code. I don't even uh, write serious code anymore. 
Uh, so, you know, I do thought experiments, I think, and I reason. And in that sense, I'm philosophy. You know, I'm surrounded by philosophers a lot of the time in my, in my day job, so to speak. So I suppose I've by now internalized some of the values of a philosopher. But still what's fundamentally driving me is, I think with a lot of people in philosophy and in science, is not being a philosopher, being a scientist, but just these fundamental questions like, you know, what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? Could there be artificial intelligence and so on? Same questions for all of us. Yeah, and and uh, you're one of the actually very few, unfortunately, very few philosophers who have tried to address philosophically uh, the issues such as uh, do we live in a simulation, uh, as exemplified by the Matrix, uh, and address even uh, issues such as the technological singularity, uh, which kind of leads me to the question, is it my perception or is it indeed the case that academia uh, and philosophers in particular kind of avoid or, or fail to engage that kind of material? Yeah, I'd say there is some conservatism. That's fair to say. And some people think, oh, all this has the ring of science fiction or something. So it can't be, uh, can't be serious. Now, speaking for myself, I like science fiction. <laughs> and I think uh, some of the most interesting uh, philosophical issues can be, uh, can be raised by it. And I think these questions are very serious. Questions about the singularity, about simulations are very serious, very important questions. So I suppose I've tried to drag some philosophers around. Along with, you know, a few other philosophers have done this, Nick Bostrom and, uh, yeah. and Dennett maybe and some others. But uh, yeah, it's I mean, I think the way to try to drag them in, my strategy has been to show not only are these important questions practically to think about, but they're philosophically really interesting questions. Thinking about whether you're living in a simulation, living in a matrix, you can bring to bear some of the tools of philosophy on that. Epistemology, metaphysics, and so on, and it will shed light on some important traditional philosophical questions. Go back to Descartes and so on. Likewise, for thinking about a singularity, I think they're interesting philosophical questions there. So I'm hopeful that in the, uh, in the years to come, there's going to be a gradual trend of philosophers becoming interested in these subjects. Because philosophers do like to interface with other areas. It's just a matter of making, making the case that this other area is a productive one to interface with. Now that Socrates has gotten involved in it, I mean, it should start yeah. picking up. Yeah, I think that's going, to be, that's going to be great for the branding. <laughs> but the, the other issue is, do philosophers fail to engage technology in general? So putting aside just uh, the singularity and uh, uh, the simulation arguments, what about technology in general? Is it the case, it seems to me that in some ways philosophy is kind of stuck uh, somewhat in, in an academic mud or, or I don't know how to po pose it, but uh, it fails to engage the exponential growth of technology in our daily life, especially for the last decade or so, I think. Yeah, I think um, you're right that philosophy has done less with, uh, with technology than it could have. I mean, people who don't know much about philosophy may think of it as this very conservative field that's stuck in the armchair and doesn't engage with anything much. I think that's actually, that's actually wrong. I mean, there are a lot of... Um, you know, philosophy these days is very much driven by interfacing with things like serious physics, mm -hmm. uh, serious neuroscience. Um, there's been quite a lot of engagement even with, uh, with AI, with artificial intelligence. But um, I think you're right that um, technology, to, do to interface seriously with a subject on the topic of philosophy, you've got to find a, 
in the mode of philosophy, you've got to find some way to make philosophy of it, to make it something you can chew on, argue about, put forward philosophical theses about, consider, and so on. People have found ways to do that, say, with the foundations of quantum mechanics, which have been incredibly productive, certain basic issues in AI. Um, You know, you'd think there'd be an interesting philosophy of the internet, for example, but I mean, I think a fair number of philosophers have talked about the internet, but uh, I think uh, Bert Dreyfus wrote a a book about it, but it hasn't become mainstream in the sense that it's a topic that every philosopher feels is on the front burner, and and, uh, and that's because I think people haven't found a way to really make, I mean, you need an issue. What is the central issue? And you need ways to argue about it, to do philosophy. So for AI, there are some basic issues. Could there be artificial intelligence? You know, for the, uh, for the matrix even, maybe. Could we, are we living in a simulation? That one's gradually catching on. For technology more broadly, well, what's the issue? How will technology transform our lives? Well, that's a bit broad. Yeah, well, you know, I we think to- issues are usually issue, ethical issues and, or, or issues such as transhumanism. And, and all of those issues are uh, issues that I will bring up in, in our uh, consequent conversation. So let me just zoom in or zoom out, rather, to the very global level and ask you this. What are the biggest problems that you as a philosopher uh, think that humanity is facing in this century? Oh, boy. Um, I don't know what you mean by me as a philosopher. I mean, or is it- the biggest problems are the biggest problems, whether I'm a philosopher or not. Um, and I don't really claim any special expertise on this, so I don't think that you know my philosophical you know, background gives me a huge amount of extra expertise than the, uh, you know, a regular thinking person is going to have. I guess I think there are some pretty obvious ones, you know, environmental uh, problems and climate change, uh, poverty, uh, threats of uh, threats of all kinds of more and more serious forms of warfare and, uh, and destruction. Yeah, the reason I ask you that question is because I want to counterpose those two the issues such as uh, the technological singularity and transhumanism, for example, and see if we can sort of situate them somewhere on the scale of importance. Yeah, so I suppose, I mean, the one I've thought the most about is the the singularity Mm -hmm. and the possibility of an intelligence explosion and the effects Mm -hmm. of artificial intelligence. I mean, how we measure importance, there's a couple of different scales for how we measure them. One is how pressing and how immediate the threat is. And second is how big the threat or the consequences are once it happens. Now, when it comes to thinking about the singularity, I think maybe it's a bit less immediately pressing than, you know, worries about, say, uh, you know, nuclear weapons or, um, you know, worries about poverty, which absolutely, uh, absolutely surround us and are in our face mm-hmm. right now. So, I, so in a sense, I'm prepared to concede it's less important than those. On the other hand, in terms of its eventual consequences, it's probably at least as large as any of them. I mean, I suppose yeah. warfare that destroyed humanity, that would be a pretty large consequence. But a singularity which you know, basically has the, uh, the potential to totally transform the world for the better, massively for the better, for the worse, that's as, as big a consequence as, you know, probably bigger consequences, say, than climate change. So, you know. Yeah, for example, the Singularity Institute's uh, main uh, sort of uh, impetus for existence is their idea that... Uh, Superhuman intelligence will be a fact of life at some point during this century, and by default, 
it is unlikely to be friendly towards humanity. It doesn't mean it would be uh, unfriendly. It, it, it may just be, you know, uh, impartial, so to speak, to, to whether we exist and survive or we don't. Um, and that, for them, is an, is an extinction category worth of a threat to our species. And therefore, we should create what they call a friendly artificial intelligence, which would sort of provide uh, or ensure our survival. Uh, so, and, and in that sense, it's a, it's a really global cataclysmic sort of uh, 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 extinction category worth of a threat. Yeah, and I think this is very much um, worth thinking about. I'm quite sympathetic to the Singularity Institute's goals here. I mean, I don't know if I think it's going to happen this century. Maybe it will. Um, there's a decent chance of that. But even if there's a small chance of that, then it's something we need to be thinking about seriously. Good chance that there's going to be superhuman intelligence at some point, and we need to think very carefully about its design. I don't know if it's going to be this century, but even if it's 10% chance it's going to happen this century, it's something we need to think about. And it seems correct to me that the designs of the first human level, and especially greater than human level artificial intelligences, if there are any, are likely to uh, have a very great effect on all later AI. So, so, it's, something, so it's something we need to get right the first time. Uh, absolutely, yes. and And... Let me just uh, grab your 10% um, uh, estimate there uh, and, and see if I can put you on the spot. Uh, do you really think it's just about 10% for the singularity to happen this century? Because I think in, in your paper you were saying that uh, it's greater than one half. Yeah. No, I said even if it's only 10%, oh. then we would still want to think about it very carefully and very seriously. So that's something directed at people who are maybe more skeptical than me. Mm -hmm. you are, there are a lot of people out there who say, oh, come on, this is pie in the sky. How do we know that singularity is going to happen? To which the right response is, we don't need to know that it's going to happen. Even if it's a 1% chance it's going to happen. The consequences are so serious, we need to think about it seriously. If you ask me, I think, yeah, what I said in my article on this is that my own personal subjective probability is something greater than a half that there'll be human level artificial intelligence. Yeah, and, and I tend to agree with you entirely on the fact that, you know, really the timeline is irrelevant. From a philosophical point of view, we're just quibbling over a decade or even if it's a century, it doesn't matter. The philosophical questions remain the same. And that is, mm -hmm. are we going to survive, number one, yep. such an event? Yeah. In your uh, opinion... Are you asking me, are we going to survive? Yeah, Probably because Ray Kurzweil out. is often criticized for being way too optimistic on his take and our chances of surviving such an event. Probably not in our current form. Um, you know, this, a singularity is likely to transform us very greatly. Uh, the question is whether that transformation takes the character of an elimination or something like a modification or an, uh, an evolution. Mm -hmm. And like, those are probably the biggest... Uh, choices that await us. I mean, if there is a world, say, 500 years in the future, with dominated by super intelligent beings running on hardware that's, you know, a thousand times or a million times faster than our, uh, than our um, biological hardware, then it's, it's a little bit hard to see what room there is in that room for just regular, regular old dumb beings like us running on the 
damn hardware, except maybe in some little part of the world they've cordoned off to keep us in a, in a museum. And that's not terribly uh, attractive. But then, of course, the technology is not just a matter of the other. It's not a matter of um, superhuman artificial intelligence and humans left behind. We can be modified by this process, too. You know, we can be uh, uh, enhanced, perhaps uploaded, perhaps sped up, perhaps... Uh, modified in all kinds of ways, and that would count, you might count that as a version where there are still humans, but humans in, a, uh, in an enhanced and modified form. So I think the real questions for me are, you know, comparing that kind of future to a future where, you know, there are basically no successes of humans at all, and uh, they've been, uh, you know, the world has just been taken over by a quite, you know, uh, distinct and perhaps alien form of artificial intelligence. Yeah, my take on it is that for as long as there's some kind of continuity between us as we are now and the beings that are going to be then, as long as there's some kind of continuity, then we can claim that we have survived in one way or another, even if we are mind uploads or sort of super enhanced uh, man-machine cyborgs or, or something like that. But I'm always fascinated, and I want to dig a little deeper here, because I'm always fascinated by the replies that people give me. For example, Michael Anisimov from the Singularity Institute gave me 20% uh, chances of survival in his estimate. Uh, I interviewed uh, George Tvorsky. He gave me 2%, and his reply was, well, civilization-wide extinct is one of the perhaps most likely explanations of why we are observing an uncolonized universe, especially yeah. at the pre-singularity stage. That perhaps is the most vulnerable stage of the development of a civilization. So in his opinion, chances 2%. <laughs> yeah. So, in a way, there's two questions here. I mean, the, the question, will humans survive? Well, that's vulnerable to the sorts of ambiguities I talked about a second ago. What counts as humans surviving? Yeah. Does distant successes count? On the other hand, the question, will any intelligent system survive or will they all be destroyed? Now, that is not, uh, you know, that's not vulnerable to the same kinds of ambiguities. Maybe there's some questions about intelligence, but you might think, yeah, we're just all going to, someone's going to come up with the right kind of, uh, the right kind of nanobomb or, or something, which is just going to uh, destroy everything. And that would be uh, pretty clearly the worst future at all if you value intelligence and, uh, and sentient life. And what are the so chances? if you were to guess? What are the chances of that one happening? I don't really have a uh, competent estimate around here. Um, now there's part of me that believes that actually, you know, as soon as humans get their hands on serious technology, we, uh, we, we destroy ourselves more often than not. But, uh, you know, but fortunately we live in something like a... Uh, uh, an Everett many worlds universe where there are um, many branches evolving, and so already we've probably already we've perhaps destroyed ourselves with nuclear technology in uh, in ninety five percent of the worlds. But hey, we happen to be in. I'm on one of the the by definition we're on one of the branches that survive. So uh, I don't know if that's a uh, an optimistic or a pessimistic way of uh, of looking at it. In in any given branch, um, you know, we're probably going down, but uh, there's a pretty good chance there's always going to be some branch out there where, through luck, we just uh, keep on making it through. You know, it's like the, the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, you know, some people think, oh, well, that was going to destroy us. But, hey, we happen to be in the branch where the bird dropped the baguette into the, uh, into the Large Hadron Collider just when they were going to start it up. And, and uh, so 
we're still here. And, you know, maybe there'll be branches where that kind of thing uh, <laughs> always continues to happen, so to speak. So, so you don't want to venture a, a number guess, like a percentage? Oh, no. I mean, yeah, I think it's an big if, if you take that many worlds cosmology, it's an ambiguous question, you know. Mm -hmm. What's the chance of it happening in any given branch versus what's the chance of it happening overall? I do think that, you know, we seem to live in a very lucky universe somehow, you know. Yeah. Whether it's the laws are right or because intelligence has managed to evolve in this time frame because we've survived all these accidents. And this gives me a bit of, this increases my credence in things like many worlds cosmologies mm -hmm. because they provide some uh, explanation for, uh, for this, kind of, this kind of luck. Well, the lucky worlds are the ones in which we'll exist. And maybe that also provides a certain kind of, I, that may, insofar as I believe we're in that kind of universe, and I think it's very likely that there'll be some branches in which, we, in which intelligence survives. Mm -hmm. Let me uh, take you to the little bit less speculative uh, part of our discussion here. Um, on Monday, I'm interviewing David Ferrucci, who is the head of, of the IBM team that created Watson. Um, so I want to ask you, how important is Watson in the grand scheme of things with respect to the singularity? Can we claim that it's one of the most not more notable benchmarks? Like, for example, in 1996, Gary Kasparov lost to Deep Blue. Uh, now, Ken Jennings lost to Watson, uh, and so on. Then perhaps uh, a computer would pass the Turing test. Maybe it would be Ramona or some other computer. And can we say that it's a very important benchmark on the way to the singularity? You know, my first reaction is that it's not all that important as a uh, benchmark. It's an impressive piece of technology, but not using a whole lot in the way of really serious intelligence algorithms. I mean, basically, it's a sort of a general knowledge uh, lookup mechanism that uses some pretty sophisticated search mechanisms, but not so surprising that a computer would be able to do well at that sort of thing, just as it's not so surprising that computers could do well at chess. On the other hand, people do say, well, uh, you know, the moment we can get an AI system to do something, then we say, ah, well, that wasn't intelligence anymore. So, I mean, it counts for something. And I saw, actually, I saw, I think it was Ferrucci, as well as Ken Jennings' talk at the last uh, Singularity Summit. And I gather from those talks, maybe there's a bit more to Watson than uh, that I was thinking, and it's, a, it's got some really quite sophisticated design going on in there. Still, I'm inclined to think it's more in the way of insights in the way of sort of, you know, database uh, design and serious search mechanisms than, um, than things I would think of as really flexible, general artificial intelligence. Because uh, it brings to my mind another sort of uh, famous uh, linguist uh, who is uh, skept famously skeptical of artificial intelligence, Noam Chomsky, who said, uh -huh. I think, after uh, Kasparov's, Kasparov's loss to Deep Blue, that um, he would be, uh, he's as impressed by Kasparov losing to Deep Blue as he would be impressed by a bulldozer winning the Olympics in weightlifting. In other words, uh, you know, this is very logical, sort of very mathematical, highly constrained kind of an exercise, which really doesn't mean anything uh, in, in the grand... Uh, scheme of things but then the next step uh, since he was a linguist then the next natural step would be linguistics or language and and I think he lost he just lost the argument at that level at least in my mind with Watson really oh but Watson is not doing serious usage of 
natural language. I mean, it's not doing anything like full natural language comprehension, let alone natural language production. So Watson is doing some cool statistical stuff with natural language, and it turns out some statistical lookup look up algorithms are good enough to do the kind of thing that Watson needs to do, but can Watson hold a conversation? No way, right? Well, not yet, perhaps, but but, uh, and I would agree with that uh, on that with you. But is it just mere statistics we're talking about? Because uh, he can answer questions, he can ask questions, he can uh, perceive idioms and questions that he's never heard before. So I think it's going a bit beyond mere statistics. I'm not saying it's just statistics. But I think it's just a long way short of the kind of thing which um, Chomsky was talking about, which mm-hmm. was you know really serious algorithms and mechanisms for full natural language comprehension and natural language production in the expression of thought and the, uh, and the, uh, the consumption of thought and okay. communication. Okay, so let's accept your argument. Let's say Watson is not really that important as a benchmark. What, in your opinion, would qualify to be one? Oh, boy, uh, that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, as soon as you give a benchmark, then... Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, back, actually, I mean, to be fair to, uh, to Watson, no, sorry, to the Deep Blue people, my PhD advisor, Doug Hofstadter, said back in the 1970s that uh, he thought you wouldn't have a chess playing, a really great chess playing computer until it was good enough to do everything in AI. Mm-hmm. You know, to be like, people talk about certain problems being AI complete. Mm-hmm. To do that, you have to be able to do everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and he thought that playing chess was AI complete. Well, it turns out now he's retracted that because it turns out playing chess is not AI complete. That's something you can do in a specialized way without being generally intelligent. Likewise, playing Jeopardy turns out to, not to be AI complete. So what is something that's closer to being AI complete? You know, the Turing test is not a bad, a really serious Turing test is not a bad benchmark here. I mean, to really be able to maintain a convincing conversation on arbitrary topics in the, uh, in the long term, is a, that would certainly convince me. I mean, the Turing test is probably too high a bar in that I don't think that uh, machine intelligence would have to be human-like to be intelligence. There's no intelligence. It wouldn't have to be able to mirror every conversational property of humans. I mean, but that still, that would be a sufficient condition. Mm-hmm. Um, but wouldn't it be too late for the, for the singularity if, if we have the successful passing of a Turing test? I mean, I'm hoping we can find like smaller step benchmarks so that we can see the writing on the wall a little bit earlier because the concern is, especially if we have a hard takeoff, uh, what Werner Vinge calls a hard takeoff, and, and, and the singularity happens only hours or minutes after that moment, yep. then we'll basically be hijacked by the info- unfolding events. So what do you think makes a good benchmark? Well, I, I don't know. I, I'm just uh, looking to, to discover for myself. The Turing test is definitely one of the major ones, I would say. Um, now, it, it's, it's again a test that has a number of, of problems and issues in its own right. But uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's a great beginning, even though, you know, there would be skeptics even after the machines passed the Turing test. There would be people who would say exactly the same thing that was said at Deep Blue and at Watson, which was, it really doesn't mean anything. It doesn't change anything in the grander scheme of things. It's just AI-specific kind of capability doesn't mean if, that it can understand what we're talking about if we're con- conversing with it. Well, whether it understands or not, and this connects to issues I'm interested in about exactly. consciousness, exactly. whether it understands or not, I think that's a very important philosophical issue. Mm-hmm. But for practical purposes, 
it we doesn't matter so much. What matters, what matters for whether we survive or die and so on, what matters for the future is, is, um, is uh, what the machine does. And if it turns out it can do things like have incredibly convincing conversations, design amazing new weapon systems, do science, transform the planet without understanding and without being conscious, then uh, that's not really very much consolation for the, uh, for the human race. So, um, so I think to some extent one can bypass some of those questions about is it truly understanding. But, um, you know, another benchmark is going to be design. Can, these, can you get AIs that can design new technology, design systems, design new computers, and so on? Maybe initially in a fairly small-scale way, but once they can do it in a small-scale way, then maybe large-scale isn't too far away. And of course, once that's happening, then designing new AIs. But people would say that's already been happening at a small scale. For example, when we were talking about the designing of certain chip architectures and stuff like that. Yeah. That's an assistive role, I think, and, you know, certain algorithms for optimization and so on. I mean, it's, a, uh, it's hard to draw the line between what's, you know, brute force and what's creativity. <laughs> you know, but we, we all know that the best, you know, the best design of technology involves a lot of creativity on the part of the, uh, the engineers, the scientists, the designers who come up with that. I mean, once machines are able to do that, then I think, then I start to worry. Then you start to think pretty soon, maybe this could be put to bear on designing AI technology mm -hmm. and then self-improvement, recursive explosion and so on becomes quite near on the, uh, on the horizon. Now that, making that into a benchmark though, does require drawing the d distinction between something like creative design and brute force design and I'm not certain how how best to turn that into a benchmark. My personal feeling is that it seems to me that at least since the time of the spinning jenny at the beginning of the industrial revolution machines were are getting better and better than humans at pretty much most things that we can think of one step at a time right in the beginning it was just uh, at wool spinning uh, eventually now it is uh, in terms of uh, chess, uh, Jeopardy, uh, car driving. Uh, this summer I rode in the Google um, autonomous car and, uh -huh. and, and that car has had uh, two accidents and twi the, the, both of those occasions it was on manual. Or one of them was on manual when an engineer was moving it from one parking spot to another and the second time a car from behind hit it on a red light. So, uh -huh. in, in other words, and it has had something like 220,000 miles. So, they're arguing that it's actually supposedly safer than the average human driver. They mentioned they're very conservative about the situations they put it in compared to the situations that human drivers get put in. I, I imagine that too, but, but still, uh, it's, it's a very early technology. And, and it is impressive, yeah. Give it another five years or ten years at worst, and uh, it would be the same story as welding or spinning wool, and, and the same applies to planes. You know, planes are not being flown anymore by pilots. Pilots just take off and land. That's all they do, really. Uh, and so my, my thing is that if I observe that phenomenon happening over and over and over again for the last several hundred years, then our area of expertise where we're totally irreplaceable is constantly shrinking. And that, for me, is a clear trend. So it seems right that it is constantly shrinking, and the question is, is it shrinking to zero, or is there some, some barrier there, or Something is it shrinking yeah. to zero in the near term or in the long term? Yeah. Maybe in the long term it shrinks to zero, but um, I don't think you can extrapolate from this shrinkage that, that you know, within 50 years machines are going to be able to do everything that 
humans can do, in particular because it does look that there is this pretty strong barrier when it comes to intelligence. Mm -hmm. I mean, artificial intelligence has just been harder than we thought it would be at the beginning. I mean, I, people sometimes criticize these early Dartmouth pioneers in the 1950s for saying, hey, it's just around the corner. But, you know, I think if I'd been there then in the 1950s, I'd just seen what computers could do. They were universal. There were algorithms. We could design whatever algorithm we want. I would have thought it was just around the corner. Yeah, give us 20, 30 years, and we'd have made amazing progress towards artificial intelligence. And really, now looking back in retrospect, that hasn't happened. Certain aspects of intelligence have just turned out to be incredibly hard to come up with algorithms for general intelligence, for flexibility, for creativity, um, and so on, really the core of uh, intelligence. To the point where some people say, you know, a year spent working in AI is enough to make you believe in God. <laughs> it's, just, it's just so hard to, to get this whole intelligence thing going. It's harder than you would think. And I don't know what we, should, uh, what we should learn from that. But one thing I learned is maybe there are some, you know, one thing we have learned is that AI is just harder than we thought. And an open question for me is whether that's for a principled reason. Maybe yeah. there's some really big barrier here that we just need to, to overcome. It might take a century. Mm -hmm. Or is it just because, hey, it's a long hill we're climbing and we'll be up it in, uh, in a few decades. I think the jury really is out. Yeah, I, I recently interviewed Ramez Naam, and he was one of the creators of uh, um, Microsoft Word and Outlook, but he was also behind the, the, the Bing search engine. And he said that, you know, the artificial intelligence that he saw there being created for Bing was absolutely amazing. And yet, in his opinion, it was nothing like human intelligence. It's like there's no comparison even. So in his mind, we're very far away from any reasonable comparison. Uh, and, and yet again, there's other people who are equally expert in the field who claim the opposite. So uh, it's, it's really hard to gauge uh, where we can go. But let me ask you here on uh, consciousness and um, uh, especially how it pertains to mind uploading. I also recently interviewed Dr. Rando Kuna. And he said that in his opinion, mind uploading is not science fiction anymore. And he's working on the whole brain emulation uh, project. What, what do you have to say about that? Well, he's more of an expert on the technology than I am, so uh, I respect his opinion. On the other hand, there is this phenomenon for all these technologies that the people are the experts, are the ones who are working on the topic, who A, have a certain investment in the technologies being successful, and B, perhaps there's a selection effect of the whole range of opinions about how soon these things are likely to happen the ones in the, about the upper 1% of that range are the ones who end up going into the field. So the experts, there is the uh, phenomenon of the experts having over-optimistic views, and I think that happens in AI. It also happens in uh, uploading technology. So with all respect to Randy, I would, you know, the fact that he has these uh, optimistic views, I don't take as giving me very, is giving me all that strong evidence that it's just around the corner. On the other hand, here where uh, at this point, we're quibbling over, you know, is it years, is it decades, is it centuries? If we're prepared to abstract a bit away from the time frame, I'm totally on his side that, uh, um, you know, at some point in the next century or so, probably, we'll get it to the point where we're able to uh, simulate brain systems computationally pretty well, and therefore, in principle, upload a brain onto a computer by simulating that brain's processes on a uh, computational system. And then, of course, the philosophical question arises. One, will it be conscious? 
the uploaded system, and two, you know, if it came from my brain, will it be me? Or will it just be someone else, you know, my twin, nice for them, but, but I'm gone. <laughs> uh, and let me ask you then, uh, in your opinion, in order to accomplish that whenever it might be, do we need to resolve what you call the hard problem of consciousness? consciousness? In order to, to answer that question about will it be conscious, I think it would help, but uh, you know, maybe it's not, it's not necessary. So um, the hard problem of consciousness is basically how do physical processes give rise to consciousness in the sense of subjective experience, not all this things we can do and that we, and we say and so on, but the experience from the inside. And you know, my own view is that we don't right now have a very, any terribly good answers to that, and there are good reasons to think that any purely physical or neurobiological uh, solution to that is going to have holes. But that said, uh, the question about whether computers can be conscious or whether uploads can be conscious I mean, for a really fully satisfying theory, solution to that, you'd want a full theory of how physical processes give you consciousness. We could see, does that apply to a machine? But even without a full theory, maybe there are indirect considerations that bear on this. So, for example, we can think about, one thing I like to do is think about what would go on during a gradual uploading process. If my neurons are replaced one at a time by functionally equivalent, you know, silicon artificial neurons. Mm-hmm. And I think if you think through the possibilities here, if they're functionally equivalent, then what happens over the course of a whole transfer of my brain from biology to silicon? If you think uploads aren't conscious, you've got to think it either gradually disappears during the process or it suddenly disappears at some point yeah. during the process. And I think just running through the thought experiment, those are fairly unlikely. And that gives us some good prima facie reasons to think that this process would preserve consciousness. If you're right about that, then at least some uploaded silicon systems can be conscious. And uh, I got to that without presupposing a solution to the hard problem. So I think there are ways to think about it without a full theory of consciousness. But, you know, certainly having a full theory of consciousness would be very helpful in thinking about this. I'm just, maybe I'm a bit more uh, pessimistic about us having that full theory of consciousness in the next century than I am about... uh, the possibilities of uploading, so maybe we should uh, have, you know, well, we, we should use every way to think about these issues that we can. I mean, this is a place where philosophy is suddenly going to be incredibly practically important. Mm-hmm. People are going to have to make this decision. Do I upload or do I not? You know, it's like I could just get rid of my old body and go into this. Well, my philosophical beliefs will make all the difference here. If I believe that the upload is going to be me, then absolutely, I don't know, maybe I'll, I'll upload. If I think, on the other hand, that What's at the other end is not going to be conscious. It's merely going to be a zombie. Or if I think it's going to be conscious, but it's going to be someone else, yeah. then I'm not going to do it. So I can see suddenly in you know, 100 years or whenever this becomes possible, people are going to be having this philosophical question may become one of the defining questions of our age. And we're going to be arguing over it. And you know, suddenly, uh, you know, suddenly philosophers are going to have a job to do. So that'll be, <laughs> that'll be interesting. Yeah, it, it seems to me that this is precisely the crux where philosophy would suddenly become very useful uh, and, and practical for everyone. Uh, I mean, first of all, the issue is way too important to be left over to technologists and engineers and you know mathematicians and AI researchers. Uh, so philosophers definitely have to contribute, but at some point it will become every human's fundamental issue of existence, because I think it goes back to the ancient uh, question of uh, know thyself, 
from ancient Greece, from the, the, the temple of, of Apollo in Delphi. Uh, and, and it goes to the, to the question of what does it mean to be human, uh, who we are, who you are. Uh, and I mean, we haven't been able really honestly to come up to a consensus and find those questions for thousands of years. And I'm afraid we're going to have very narrow timeline to come up with a new version, version 2.0. Yeah. I do think the following is likely to happen. After uploading technology actually becomes possible, it's going to make people more optimistic about surviving uploading because the following is going to happen a lot. You will see your friends uploaded. Um, you know, they'll go into computer simulations. And assuming they're good enough simulations, mm -hmm. we know how they're going to respond. They're going to say, oh, yeah, here I am. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm still conscious. It's still me. I remember you. I remember everything. We'll have a conversation and so on. And that will have the effect, I think, of practically convincing people that their friends are still there, mm -hmm. that they've uh, survived the process in a way that is going to make it relatively hard for them to hold out the resistance. I mean, there's still the theoretical possibility. Oh, no, you're a zombie. Exactly. That's what no, I was going to say. Your problem happened. But once you're actually there talking and interacting with them, it's going to be become about as hard to do that. As, I mean, I can do that to you now, too. I can say, hey, <laughs> you're a zombie. But yeah. once I'm actually interacting with you, it's very difficult to maintain that line. I suppose, on the other hand, once you get multiple uploads, if we all create five copies of ourselves, then it's going to be very hard to maintain the line that they're all yourself. And that would transform our attitudes in a different way. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'd then become... We'd, we'd, we'd then become come to be very skeptical about whether uploads count as the original person. So maybe the way our philosophical attitudes evolve is partly contingent on the forms of uploading that become common in the uh, in the future. Yeah, and that's why I think we should, um, or at least I'm trying to bring in uh, ethics into into the whole issue because I think ethics is is our only. Um, I mean, I'm I'm an atheist, so. For me, at least, it's not religion that would provide the, the sort of a framework to evaluate this, but, but it would be ethics. Um, and and um, I think it, it would be the most practical way of adopting ethics in a situation like this. But let me ask you this. Uh, I know that uh, you are also an atheist. Um, what do you think on uh, the topic of immortality, though? Because you can, as it turns out, we can still be atheists, and yet we might have to confront the idea of immortality, be it as uploads, be it as, you know, genetically modified beings or in some other way. Yeah, I think these two topics should be totally separated. You could be a theist and believe we're mortal, mm -hmm. and you can certainly be an atheist and think we'll live together, live, live forever. Mm -hmm. As far as I can tell, mortality as we currently understand it's a contingent consequence of... Uh, certain properties of our, our biological systems, and people are working to combat that, whether it's the anti-aging crowd or even the uploading crowd. You know, the reasons which apply to human systems, biological systems being mortal, may not apply to uploaded systems. I suppose there are still some very general reasons, like the second law of thermodynamics and the heat death of the universe, <laughs> and so on, to, uh, to worry about. But if those are the worst of our problems, then I think, you know, we're... Uh, that's sort of near enough immortality, so to uh, so to speak. So um, no, I think immortality is, you know, I think uh, immortality is a very serious uh, prospect and one to take seriously. And my only worry is that uh, you know it's not going to happen quite soon enough for me. I think. <laughs> Maybe it's going to be in 
one of the last generations that doesn't quite get to be immortal. So on the other I'm hand, a- we might as well be philosophical about it and say, well, if it doesn't happen for us, at least it would happen for the next generation or the one after it. Yeah, on the other hand, which is nice for me as a moral being with concern for everyone else out there. But hey, I'm a selfish being too, and I want to. <laughs> it's going to be a singularity. I want to be around for it. So, uh, I my, agree. My best hope might be being reconstructed. They'll, hey, I tell you what, you keep this video online <laughs> in the Singularity weblog, and once the singularity happens, they're going to go to the Singularity weblog records and say, what do people say about this? And they'll, hopefully they'll see you, and they'll see me, and they've got a lot of information. Hey, guys, yeah. you can look at me from all these angles. <laughs> you can uh, listen to everything I'm saying, everything I'm doing. From all that information, a super intelligent being ought to be able to reconstruct a whole lot of the processes that generated that superficial information. Yeah, Hopefully yeah. they'd be smart enough. They can get my brain, enough, enough of my brain back from this that I'll be a reconstructed upload. And maybe that's my route to immortality. That's exactly right. But I mean, and that's what kind of Ray Kurzweil is intending to do with his own father. He's like meticulously collected every single bill, letter, note that his father has written and pictures and sound recordings and all of that. But then the question, of course, again, is, as you pointed before, that is that the same person? Would that be his yeah. father? And, and my yeah. reply would be definitely not, uh, personally. Even if you go and take, say, DNA samples and recreate, you know, a biological clone, it would still not be his father because it didn't have the experience and, and, and all those sort of neural uh, structures that his original father had. And what if we do it gradually? What if, we, uh, what if it's a good enough simulation that it really does simulate all of his internal neural structures? Where do and, we get all the information for that, though? Okay, you just said we have really good brain scans. Perhaps, yeah, that, that's that's definitely an option. But for somebody who's already died in the past and we don't have those, then that's yeah. that's not an option. I'm hoping that these AI, once you're super intelligent, reverse engineering is going to be an art. You know, there's only going to be so many systems that we are going to be, produce all these outputs and, <laughs> Like this, and so I hope. I hope this is on high definition video, by the way. Uh, well, we have to blame your Wi-Fi connection for not construct a lot of the internal processes. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fantastic. I really hope you're right, but but then again, they would say, well, this was a low definition recording of the video, so yeah. we can only recreate like thirty percent of David and Nick. <laughs> uh-huh. Maybe a bit enough, though. You know, if I find enough videos, enough. Um, yeah, you, know, you write some books. Okay, there's only so many bits in the book. We need some way to get really. What we really ought to be doing is just saving as much information about ourselves as we uh, as, as we can. I suppose I, ought, I suppose I ought to go in for a brain scan. I haven't done that yet, but uh, <laughs> not to mention the whole cryonics thing. And David, I love talking to you, but uh, I'm afraid we're running out of time. And out of respect for your time, I'd like to close our interview with two very quick questions. And uh, the second last one is this: Where can people find more information about you and your work? Oh well, the best way to do that would just be to. Uh, Go to my website, which uh, well, the easiest way to find it would be a Google search on my name, David Chalmers, or the, uh, the address is conch.net, C-O-N-S-C, as in consciousness, .net, and then there's just a billion uh, papers and articles and other things, jokes, uh, links, uh, photos, all kinds, of, all kinds of fun stuff there. I've got a photo gallery of philosophers, photos of all the uh, philosophers around the world you might want to... Uh, see what they look like, and so on. So that's the, uh, that's the best way. Fantastic. And um, do you have a parting message, perhaps uh, 
in a couple of sentences the most important thing that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this interview with you today? And well, the AIs who are going to eventually recreate you. Uh, well, your viewers are very sophisticated, so I don't know, let's see, what would be a good parting message for them. But in general, I think one message I've been trying to get across about this stuff is that not only are these questions very, very practically important, you know, they might have a huge effect on the future of humanity and the planet, but they are questions we can think about in a serious and rigorous philosophical way. I mean, I think sometimes these questions have a bad reputation in academic circles because people think, ah, it's, you can't think about them rigorously. So one thing I've tried to do in some of my work on these topics, and we haven't really talked so much about that, is to say, no, 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 you can apply the same standards of rigor and argumentation to thinking about the future and what's going to happen as we do to thinking about abstract philosophical topics like the nature of reality or the difference between good and evil, mm -hmm. um, or even to doing science and so on. So I've tried to do a small amount of that in, uh, in my work, but I'm sure that your listeners out there, there's some very, very smart people out there who've got the ability to think very seriously and rigorously about these topics. So I'd love to see, you know, some of them, you know, bringing that capacity to bear and just getting more and more serious, hard-nosed, rigorous work on issues about uh, artificial intelligence, the singularity and the future. And I would personally recommend to my viewers to perhaps begin by visiting your website and reading some of the materials that you have already produced on both the matrix, the, the simulation argument, the technological singularity, because I think they're a great starting point at the very least. So, uh, David Chalmers, thank you very much for taking time to be with us today. Thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure.